Well, good morning. It is good to be gathered again with the saints of Applegate Community Church. And I have been praying for you. I have come under the growing conviction in my personal life, for the life of our church, in my leadership of my home, uh, that prayer is of absolute necessity. I have been reading Spurgeon on prayer. I have been reading E.M. Bounds on prayer. I have been reading many books regarding spiritual leadership on prayer. And I am convinced that I do not pray enough. I can't tell you whether or not you pray enough because I am not seeing you in your, as the Lord may say, secret prayer closet. I don't know what your day-to-day looks like or where your thoughts go, but I don't pray enough. And I want to pray more. I need to pray more. If we really believed that prayer was as powerful as Scripture says it is, why would we not pray more? Prayer is the ultimate humble experience. Prayer says, I don't know it all. I can't do it all. I can't be it all. And I am here to tell you that all three of those statements are true of myself. I need Christ. I need the Holy Spirit to give me discernment. I need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be working in me on a daily basis to change me. And apart from him, apart from abiding in him on a daily basis, I can do nothing. And the Apostle Paul knew that. Not necessarily about me, but of all true believers. That when we start our walk of faith, it begins with Jesus, I am not good enough to get into heaven. I am not good enough to fulfill perfection. And I need to trust in you for salvation. And for some reason, we believe that once we're saved, once Jesus has rescued us from the grips of hell and brought us into eternal light and fellowship with him, beginning the process of glorification, that somehow we can do it on our own, in our own strength, by our own will, and that is simply not true. As I preached a couple weeks ago, If you try to build that house in your own strength, you will fail. And the Apostle Paul knows that to be true of every believer. Because God wants us, his children, to cry out to him in dependence. That is what ultimately most glorifies our God. And as believers, isn't that what we are supposed to do? Our whole goal in becoming believers We are saved to do good works, which will glorify our Father in heaven. If we don't desire that, if we don't long to do that, and long to do that in more increasing ways, we have to ask ourselves, are we truly a believer in Jesus Christ? Have we truly trusted in Jesus as our Savior? 
the perfecter of our faith. Paul knew that. And as we turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, we look at the Philippian church who, as you might look at the Philippian church and read the joy that Paul has over this church, you may say this is a perfect church. They were not a perfect church. They weren't. If you look in chapter 4, you see two women named in the church. And I don't know what the beef was between these two women, but it was there. And it was a beef of renown. It was some kind of argument or fight that they had that Paul had to call it out in a letter. What would you do if you had an ongoing conflict with someone in your church and Paul, the apostle, called it out, not just in a letter to your church, but a letter that endured for all time? How would you like your, that to be your legacy? Hey, Lauren, you need to stop fighting with Jenny. And everybody around them, you need to help them stop fighting. And by the way, for the rest of Christianity, everybody's going to know about your fight. They were not a perfect church. And yet, Paul loved the Philippians. And I want to talk about why. This is a ministry that I believe Paul understood their need for prayer, and he wanted to continue their, their, their on-fire ministry and fuel it with prayer. Not just prayer, but thankful, joyful prayer. A church that is motivated by grace, that's the engine, and the gasoline is prayer. That this church would continue to love and pursue Jesus Christ and partner in the gospel. So if you would, let's read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through eight. And I'm going to be reading from the CSB, but it's slightly different translation, a great translation, but you will probably be reading from an ESV or an NIV, and that's okay. Translations, those three translations are great translations, New King James Version, even if you're a King James Version person, that's okay. But I just wanted to make you aware of the slight differences in the words used as I read them. And it begins this way, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Let me pray this morning as we go to God's word that the Holy Spirit would be working through his word in our hearts to encourage us and convict us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, if we're honest and we need to be with you, our hearts are burdened. Our hearts are burdened for our church, 
Our hearts are burdened for our people. Please make our hearts even more burdened to glorify you. Please make our hearts even more burdened to love Jesus Christ in the way that we are called to love him. Please burden our hearts to love your word and to be obedient to it, every single part, even those parts that we find hard or difficult to challenge our hearts with, that we would look at our own hearts and see pride, that we would look at our own hearts and see lack of self-control, that we would see anger issues, that we would see lack of peacefulness, that we would see grudge holding, that we would see all the areas of sin that may possibly dominate our hearts, that we need to put off and put on the fruit of the Spirit. As we hear your word preached, Father, this morning, May we long to be made more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And even those examples in the scripture that we're called to follow after them as they follow after Christ, like Paul. Lord, even though the Philippian church wasn't perfect, they loved you and they loved your gospel and they partnered with Paul for the sake of the gospel. Make us that church. Pierce our hearts with your word this morning, we pray, dear Lord. And may any words that come out of my mouth that do not honor you or that are not not true of you or your word, that you would hold those back by your Holy Spirit, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage this morning, I want to direct you towards three main points that I have us for us to see from the passage. The first being Paul's thankful joy for ministry partners, verses three through five. And the second point that we'll see from this section is a work started by God will be completed. And then finally, what is the evidence of a completed work? Verses seven through eight. So let's jump in. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul has these ministry partners, the Philippian church, and he says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. That is a lot of prayer. Paul says, I remember you when I'm praying and I pray for you in every one of my prayers. And what does Paul say about praying? Pray without what? Ceasing. Paul was a man of prayer. He was fueled by prayer. When he set up a ministry, he wanted it to continue to be fueled by prayer. Paul understood that prayer was the powerhouse of the church. When Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in England, in London, 
When I got to take, a, when I did my law school and I, I spent a month in France, our weekends were started on Thursday where they would allow us to travel. And so I flew over to London one of my weekends. And the first thing I did is I hopped on the tunnel and I took the exit. I found out where the exit was for the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Tabernacle. And when I exited, I was like, whoa, this is a rough area. <laughs> I don't think it was always like that, but it, was, it is now. And there was a church in front of me. And I went in, and I went in the side door as people were coming out. And to the right, there was kind of a little museum. And it showed Spurgeon and his aspects of ministry. And then I snuck into the sanctuary. <laughs> And I stood at Spurgeon's pulpit. And I looked out and I looked at his ministry that was not just to his church, but began to reach worldwide. And then I went down to the basement. And the reason why I wanted to go down to the basement specifically, because when Spurgeon would give people tours of his church, He would take them down to the basement where his people were on their knees praying for the ministry of the church. And Spurgeon, who was most excited about taking people down to the the basement, would say, this right here is the powerhouse of our ministry. The people in the congregation on their knees consistently praying their effectual prayers for the ministry. Paul understood that. And so that's why he says, he says, with great, with thankful joy, he says, I give thanks. Now, in the next passage, he says, with joy. So you can say, you can think of it as thankful joy or grateful joy or joyful thankfulness. That welled up in his heart as he thought about the Philippian church. And that thankful joy about who the Philippians were in their ministry overflowed in prayer of thankfulness to his God who saved the Philippians. I thank my God, he says. I love that. I love when scripture passages use the term my God. It's such an intimate and wonderful show of a divine connection that we have to our transcendent God who through Jesus came down, invaded our world, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again so that we could become children of God. We can every day, minute by minute, enter into the throne room of our God and speak to him. Does that not amaze you? It should send shivers down your spine that any time of the day or night, you can enter into the throne room of our God and speak to him. And not only that, that constantly our Lord Jesus Christ is making intercession for you to the Father. That's just a glimpse of the power of prayer. And when Paul thinks of the Philippians, he says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. And it's joyful. I can't help it. It wells up in me and I can't help but say, dear God, thank you. Thank you for the Philippians. 
It's a little different than the letter he wrote to the Corinthians. And we don't even have all those letters in our canon of Scripture. We've only got two of them. There was another one that I think was probably Paul throwing the book at him. <laughs> and the Lord said, nah, that one's a little too rough. <laughs> Let's skip to the second letter and we'll call that 1 Corinthians. But there was something about what the Philippians were doing and how they were doing ministry that just caused Paul to have this thankful joy about them. My God, he says. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, the the word for thankful or thanks is the same word that we get the English word Eucharist. Now, raise your hands. How many of you at one time in your life were Roman Catholic? Okay, any of you? A couple of you. My parents, my dad was raised Roman Catholic and by the grace of God came to hear the true gospel and became saved and became an elder and then became a pastor. And because of that, my oldest brother is a pastor and I have been a pastor and my brother-in-law is a pastor. And it's a legacy of ministry because someone shared the gospel with my dad and he'd never truly heard it. My grandparents who said we were raised a Catholic and we will die a Catholic. And that's often a statement they make. Because of that, my grandparents, who I never thought I would see come to know the Lord, and neither did my parents, became believers in Jesus Christ. That word Eucharist is just a word that means thanks. And that Eucharist is another term for the Lord's table, communion. And really what it means is thanks that God has made a way for us to have fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. So every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we give thanks that Jesus made a way for us to do that. And so Paul, in that same idea, he goes, I give thanks to my God for you. And he says it in such an intimate way. Let me ask you this. Is there anyone in your life that you can think of as a believer whether it's past or present, that when you think of them, you can't help but have thankful joy for them and to go, God, thank you that you put that person in my life. Maybe it was that person who first shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was that person who came to you and said, I don't know you very well, but let me tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because you need him. Maybe it was a person who on a consistent level, the Lord put them in your life after you were a believer that said, you know what? I don't know why, but the Lord has put you on my heart and I want to pray for you. Maybe it was that person who came to you and knew that you were hurting because of a specific instance in your life, a trial or tribulation, and they came to you and said, I'm just thinking of you. I know this is a hard time and I have no words, but I want to pray for you. It seems like that the Philippian church had many people in that church who were like that. Brothers and sisters, I believe we can and should be a church like that. That when any of us thinks about the other person, we should be welled up with thankful joy to our God for that person. Paul. He reminds them of thankful joy and where it's found. 
Psalm 43, 4 says this, Then I come to the altar of God, to God, my greatest joy. I will praise you with a liar, God, my God. The psalmist writes in that personal way, and he uses the word, my greatest joy is God. It's only right that we can have joy first and foremost in our God. And then it's okay to be really grateful and joyful for the people that God gives us. And I love how the psalmist connects the two. God is my greatest joy, and he is my God. And that's good. As believers, we're supposed to overflow with joy. So why does Paul have this much joy, thankful joy, for the Philippians? Who are they? What did they do? Why does this well up in his heart when he thinks of them? As he remembers them in every prayer, Verse 5, it says, because of your partnership. He was so grateful for the partnership in Jesus Christ in what he was doing to further the gospel. He indeed felt very close and very personal relationship with the Philippians. And he was always praying for them, as I said. Let me read you a quote on Spurgeon regarding prayer, because this is the greatest thing. Of all the things that Paul could do for this church, this was the greatest thing he could do, was to pray for them constantly. Spurgeon said this about prayer and his own church. Prayer is the power which God brings blessing down upon all our work. I beg you day by day as you walk the streets to have this petition in your hearts and in your mouths, Cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary. And that's a verse from Daniel. Oh God, bless thy church all over the world, in Europe, in America, in Asia, in Africa, in Australia. Everywhere prosper thy work among the heathen. And in our own highly favored land too, cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary. And do not cease to present that prayer until to the fullest possible extent it shall be answered. And when will that be? When he comes, for those coming, we look with joyful expectation. The Lord bless you for Christ's sake. Amen. And in that same vein, Paul is saying that to the Philippians. You've partnered with me in the gospel, and I can't help but be so grateful to that, that I thank my God and joy, and I will continue to pray for you. And it's because of that partnership. Let's look a little bit of what that partnership is. In verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. So let's look at what the first day is until now, and we'll look at what that now is. When Paul uses that word partnership, it's the Greek word koinonia. You may have heard that, but all that simply means is fellowship. It's a deep, spirit-filled, spirit-ignited fellowship. Paul says, I have this deep fellowship with you in the work of the gospel from the first day until now. So let's recollect what that was. That partnership, as we see later on in the book, is primarily financial, but not just giving money to Paul. We'll talk about specifically what that looks like. Somewhere between AD 61 and 63, The place was Rome, and this is where the Apostle Paul was under house arrest when he writes this book. 
He was there awaiting trial, uncertain as to whether he would be vindicated and released or convicted and executed. Paul is forced to wait for his trial to begin and its verdict to be rendered. But while he waits, he works and he prays. Paul was chained to two Roman soldiers at the time, but house arrest afforded him many privileges. For instance, Paul was able to entertain guests in the house that he rented during the imprisonment. And throughout his imprisonment, various friends and colleagues came and went. But one guest came and stayed, and his name was Epaphroditus from the city of Philippi. When the church at Philippi heard about Paul's circumstances, they raised a love offering to send him. Epaphroditus was selected to carry this gift to Paul, but the money was only a part of the gift. The bigger and the better gift was Epaphroditus himself. Epaphroditus was sent there to serve Paul on behalf of the Philippians while Paul was in prison until he was released. And Epaphroditus ministered to Paul's needs and ministered with Paul and spreading the gospel until he became so sick that he almost died. Let me ask you this. Have you ever served to the extent that you have almost died because of serving? I haven't. I haven't even gotten close. Like my tank gets to quarter fill. I'm like, I'm done. I need a nap. Epaphroditus served Paul to such an extent that he nearly died. So Paul thought it best to send Epaphroditus home. And the Philippians who were troubled by the news of his sickness worried about Paul and Epaphroditus. And indeed, Paul needed Epaphroditus. But the but he loved the church even more. So Paul sent Epaphroditus home to relieve their concerns about him. Before Epaphroditus' departure, Paul prepared a gift for him to carry home to the Philippians, a letter. And in this letter is where we get Philippians. So that's the background of what happened. But where it starts is that Paul goes into the city. And while he's there, he goes to a synagogue. And as he goes into the synagogue... What does he see? Probably to his surprise, only women. (laughs) And they're worshiping. And he meets a specific woman named Lydia. And as he tells Lydia about who Jesus Christ is, she becomes a convert. And Lydia is a very influential woman in the city of Philippi. And so she invites Paul back to her house. And Lydia, a faithful woman, a businesswoman in this city becomes the nucleus by which the gospel begins to spread in Europe. She was the first European convert. And there's other things that happen between when Lydia becomes saved and when Paul is in prison. Obviously, this church is growing and thriving. And I can't help but think that Paul remembers when he was there And a little slave girl who was demon-possessed. And people would come and pay money to her slave owners. Would cry out. Until she annoyed Paul. And Paul finally turned around and said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I cast you out. And the demons left her. And the slave owners were so upset that they lost their moneymaker that they had Paul thrown in jail. 
and over and over ministry opportunities and then the growing and thriving church and Paul looking to those people who had become beloved to him, so beloved and they to Paul and Paul to them that they supported him and the gospel work that he continues to do with their funds, with their money. This is the partnership. Not only that they partnered with Paul in the gospel itself, that they were saved, that they know Jesus Christ, that they could experience with Paul the joys of what it means to be a believer. But they partnered with Paul in the furtherance of the gospel by sending him people and funds so that he could go out and do the work of the gospel. That's why these people were so beloved to Paul. It wasn't really about the money. It was that they loved the gospel. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of people that I love who are unbelievers. But I do not love them the way I love believers. There is something in the gospel and the power of the gospel that changes us, that transforms us, that makes us recognize that the gospel is much deeper than blood, much deeper than proximity, much deeper than shared hobbies or work or anything else. That Paul's love and thankful joy flowed out of the gospel and the partnership that the Philippians had in the gospel. And he does. He tells the Corinthian church and the church in Ephesus and the Galatians that he loves them too because of the gospel. The people in this room right here are more important than the unbelievers in this community. Not in the sense that we don't strive to love them and share the gospel with them, but the gospel is the most important thing. What these people out here need most is the gospel. It's not a gas station, even though I've almost run out of gas by the time I got here and then gone, oh no, and Mark and Debbie had to follow us back and we were coming up Jacksonville Hill and going, all right, let's just get to the top of the hill and then we can coast all the way down to the gas station in Jacksonville When you see your odometer saying three miles and you just get to, you know, the psychedelic farms farm on the right side, when you just seen the Roosh coffee shop and you're going, I got three miles, I'm not going to make it. Having a coffee shop or a restaurant or a place for people to hang out or a community center, those pale in comparison to our neighbors needing the gospel. And the love for the people in this room, but not just in this room. Okay, let me tell you this. The gospel is impacting Christ-centered churches everywhere. And those people, we should have a deep and effectual love for them as Paul did. A thankful joy that rises up because we partner with them in the work of the gospel here in Applegate. 
And every church that's in Medford and every church that's in this valley and every church that's in Grants Pass, we should have a deep affection for them because we are partnered in the gospel. And that's why we give money to people around the world who are spreading the gospel to those who have never heard and to Bible translators who are translating God's word into pe- to those languages where people have never read about the gospel. And that's the partnership that Paul could ha- couldn't help but say, my thankful joy wells up to my God because when I think of you, it's about the gospel. And that you believe it and that you love it and that you love it so much that you're willing to give sacrificially for it. Paul is so grateful for these people. But in his prayers, he also wants to remind them and encourage them even more. And he does that in verse six. Paul says this in verse six. I am sure of this. Some translations say, being very confident, or excuse me, being confident of this very thing. What he's about to say is very important. It's an issue of doctrine. That he, our God, who started a good work in you. Now let me talk about that section first and then I'll talk about the next section. That he who started a good work in you and what is that work and how did it start? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And you've probably read this verse a number of times, maybe even memorized it. I think it is a great verse to memorize. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. This is the work that God has begun in each of us. Verse 8, for you are saved by grace through faith. Grace is what saves you. The conduit is faith. That's the pipeline that by which grace gets to you. This is not of yourselves. That right there is the portion that my dad needed to hear. Because in his Roman Catholic religion, he believed that all he had to do was just enough good works for that scale to tip. And then when God judged him at the end, he would see his good works and those would outweigh his bad works. And God would say, okay, because you took the Eucharist and because you made your confession and because you saw the priest, then you can come in and that's just just good enough. But he was never, ever confident in his salvation. Brothers and sisters, here is our confidence that you were saved by grace through faith and it is not of yourselves. Guess what? If it's not of yourselves, then you can't do anything to lose it. If you didn't do anything to save yourselves, you can't do anything to lose it. Now, On the back end, I'll read a verse in a few minutes that talks about continuing in faith, and we'll talk about that as well. But it continues on. It is a gift of God. It comes from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. You can't say, I did it. I found God. I'm the one who searched it out, and I said, God, 
okay, you can save me. You simply put your trust in Jesus Christ that he did it all for you. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is the good work that he started in us. Paul is confident that God has begun a good work in them individually and as a church. They were supporting the ministry of the ongoing gospel. And Paul was continuing to encourage them in that. Don't give that up. Keep going. That the grace that was manifested in the members there in working of salvation and sanctification would continue on both locally and corporately. And then the second part of verse 6, that he who began a good work in you, who started a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll carry it on to completion. Brothers and sisters, God is always faithful to complete a work that he has begun. God never fails. He never has in the past. He never will in the future. And that gives us confidence to put all of our eggs in one basket that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has saved you if you have put your trust in him and that he will carry that on into completion. No matter what the trials or tribulations or struggles are in this life, he will complete you in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that to the Philippians, that they can have their confidence in God. That the God who saved them and us and that the Holy Spirit who is working in us right now, that he will bring us to glory. This doctrine is often called the perseverance of the saints. That if Jesus has saved you, you will persevere. That if you have been truly transformed in Jesus Christ, you will make it to the end. Romans 8, I want to read that. And you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. But you can mark it down, Romans 8. Starting at verse 35, it says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in this world can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. When you are in Jesus, nothing can take that away. In your heart, that should make you scream, Hallelujah! He has won! And yet I get it. 
It doesn't take away the daily struggle of sin or the difficulties that come from life, the health issues, the mental issues, the struggles with anxiety and depression, the losses that we experience, the pain that we may go through with family members. It does not take that away. But when we sit and we think about it, we can be confident that the God who saved us will complete it to the end. That he will bring us from the wretched state that we were walking in darkness, not just walking, but stumbling in darkness, living in fear. Wondering that if, if, if there is a heaven or a hell, will I make it? And realizing if we're honest with ourselves that we probably wouldn't that he brought us out of that darkness into his marvelous light and anyone that is placed in Jesus' hands, no one can pluck them out. My youngest son is named Jude. And the reason why we named him Jude is because one of my favorite passages is at the end of Jude. And it's a reminder That as we read Jude, I say Jude 24 because there's only one chapter. (laughs) So Jude 24 says this, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, forever and ever. Amen. That's a doxology that I want to remember because when there's dark times and I'm struggling, and I've already told you there are times where I deal with anxiety and sometimes depression. And I'm okay with telling you that. I want you to know that. I'm not a superhuman Christian. The elders are not superhuman. They don't have some special anointing. We are all in the same status before Jesus Christ. We are all priesthood. We are all priests in the order of Jesus Christ. There is nothing special about me standing up here except the gifts that God has maybe given me. And I still struggle with sin and I still struggle with living in this fleshly tent that has remnants of sin in it. And when I meet those trials... I look at this verse and I go, amen, our God who is glorified, my Lord Jesus Christ is glorified because he is able. He is able to bring me and to protect me and to help me to not stumble and to make me stand in front of the presence of God's glory without blemish and with great joy. Because when God looks at me, he sees Jesus' righteousness. He is perfecting us from day to day. And that sanctification happens until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that term mean? In scripture, it uses the day of the Lord, but that's different from the day of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord throughout scripture is often seen as the judgment 
where the destruction of those who are evil, this day of Jesus Christ is talking for us as believers as the day that's reserved for us to receive the crown of righteousness. As 2 Timothy 4, 8 through 9 says this, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. It's the day when we're transformed into our glorious selves, where we live with God for all of eternity, that until he starts, once he starts this good work, he will complete it all the way to that day. So have confidence in the God who starts a good work in you. He will be faithful to complete it. Amen? So we move on to the next section, the evidence of the completed work in the Philippians. And what does that mean? Verses 7 and 8. He says this, Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, Because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He starts off and he says, it is right. What does he mean? What he means is it's justified. It's good. God is calling him to feel this way. It's put in his heart by the Lord because of their partnership in the gospel, because they have the same gospel. It's right. It's justified. It's almost like he's, he's saying this is confirmed. It's a confirmation. It's evidence that you're doing what's right. This is the way, is what he's saying. I can feel this way about you, and I should. It is indeed right for me to think this way about all of you that my thankful joy wells up to the Father because of your partnership in the gospel. Paul knew that this thinking in conjunction with his feelings, he says, it's right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart. Our mind and our emotions, our theology and how we feel need to match up. We get in trouble when we know what's true, but then we respond in our emotions in a different way, right? We go, I know I should be acting this way. I know this is what the fruit of the spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, on and on. We know we're supposed to act that way. But if our emotions are lording it over us, if we can't respond rightly, there's a disconnect. That's when we usually wind up sinning. When we know I'm supposed to be self-controlled in my emotions, and then we're not. I know that I'm supposed to be self-controlled and not get angry or really frustrated, and then we lose it. I know that I am supposed to look at food and everything in moderation, (laughs) But then I eat too much. Brothers and sisters, there are two things that preachers do not like to talk about, even though it's in scripture. Gluttony and tithing. Well, there's some preachers that really like to talk about tithing, okay? And I use the word tithing because that's what everybody accepts. 
In the New Testament, it's, it's not a tithe. It's a giving to the Lord for the continuation of the ministry. I'm going to talk about that in a second very briefly. But we know we don't like to have self-control. I, there are times where I'm like, I know I shouldn't be eating that, but I do. I did it to Lauren on, on Thursday at home group. I know I'm not supposed to eat gluten. And when I went back to the gluten-free pizza, it was all gone. And so I looked at her and I picked up a gluten-filled slice and I showed it to her and she goes, it's your choice. But the look she gave me, it was spirit-filled, okay? The look she gave me said, you can make that choice, but you know it's wrong. And I said, fine, I'm not gonna eat it. I'll have chips when we get home. And she goes, chips? Brothers and sisters, when there's a disconnect between what we know to be true and what we feel and how we act based on those feelings, it's sin. Paul says right here, the connection is, I think and I feel in this way for the Philippians, and it is right. It is a confirmation that not only God is in this with me, but he's in it with you because the gospel is primary. The gospel in your church and in Philippi and the gospel in Thessalonica is primary and in Ephesus and in Colossae and in all of the world as the gospel spreads. That is right. And my affection for you and partnership in that gospel is right. And he says, and this was in apologetics, and in confirmation of the gospel. He says, in the defense of, which is where we get the word apologetics, where you defend the gospel for those who are making assaults on it. And in the confirmation that it's working amongst you, that you confirm those doctrines and say, this is right. Not only are we going to defend it, but we're going to live it out. It was that partnership, and that partnership consisted of those people giving of themselves and their money to the work of the gospel. So I've already kind of talked about gluttony. I'm going to talk about giving to the church and to missions too. Brothers and sisters, all of us are in different places, and at some points we we have struggles and trials and tribulations. But in order for this church to continue the work of the ministry, we have to give to it. And sometimes you go think, maybe you may not agree with how the church has been run or any church. I've been in churches like that where you don't agree to it, so you decide not to give. Jesus, when he saw the widow in the temple and she dropped her last two coins in there, after all the rich people were dropping their money in that, what did Jesus say? That woman gave more than all of those rich people. That woman was right. Let me ask you this. What do you think Jesus thought of the religious leaders and the temple at that time? You think they were right? You think those religious leaders looked to Jesus as the Messiah? The temple was run by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who eventually put Jesus to death. That woman was not giving To those leaders, she was giving to God and the continuation of godly worship. And that's what the gospel is. That's what our church is about, is the continuation of the gospel ministry. And that partnership with God is why we give. 
I don't know any of your giving. I don't. I know what Lauren and I give, and that's it. I am just telling you, from the biblical standpoint, you need to be giving what you can between you and the Lord to this church if you're going to continue being a part of this church and this ministry, the gospel ministry. But it's right. And that's why Paul had such affection for the church that as the church was doing gospel ministry, it was confirmed in his heart with thankful joy that they loved the gospel. Each of you in your own heart before the Lord has to decide what you will give and if you can give in that moment. To continue the work of gospel ministry in this church. That's what Paul was excited about the Philippians were doing, was giving to the work of the gospel. Not to him. He would have loved it if they were given to any of the apostles that were out doing the work. But specifically, they had a relationship with him and they gave for the gospel. And because of his love for Jesus Christ and his gospel, it welled up in his heart with thankful joy. With thankful joy. There are two things that God loves and they're in conjunction. God loves a cheerful giver. If you can't give with cheerfulness, then you need to pray for it. You don't just not give. You don't just not pray because you don't feel like praying. You pray until you want to pray. And you give with prayers in your heart that God would help you to be a cheerful giver. Again, I'm not telling you, uh, and that's why I said it's not a tithe because a tithe was a very specific amount. It was 10%. But you need to be giving for the sake of the work of the gospel. And I'm going to take it all the way back to Genesis because I did in my last sermon. Guess what? The second sin that that we got the narrative was in Scripture. You know what the second sin was? Cain and Abel. And you know why Cain killed Abel? Because he was jealous of Abel's gift to God that was accepted. And what does God tell Cain? If you had brought me something that was acceptable, this would not be happening. It's your own fault. You were in sin. And he becomes cursed and goes off. Brothers and sisters, ministries and missionaries, if they're going to do the work of the gospel, oftentimes need to be supported. And Paul was highlighting this church because of the extreme support that they gave, not to those people, but to the work of the gospel. I pray that we would be that type of church that continues to be able to give more and more. My prayer is that we would grow in spiritual maturity. And if the Lord tarries to grow numerically so that we can give more to the gospel work, that we can have more worshipers to go out and find more worshipers. 
Go and make disciples in Applegate Valley to gather more worshipers right here to worship the Lord together in spirit and in truth. So I'll leave you with this, just a few points of application. That gospel joy is, that, that thankful joy is primarily found in God for his goodness and his kindness and his mercy and his grace, but it's also found in the joy of others. When we serve, we don't know, need to know they're grateful to us for doing it. We don't need to stand in the back and go, do they recognize me? Do they see me? Do they know I did this? You can stand back and see the joy on others and go, I know I serve them in Jesus Christ and that is enough joy for me that I serve my Lord by serving them. So that's the first application. Second application is God who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. It may feel small right now. It may feel just... You're just hanging on to Jesus. But brothers and sisters, if you continue to work out your salvation, dig in, do the disciplines of godliness. Those don't gain you any favor with God, but they help you grow in your Christianity. As you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. God never, in Jesus Christ, never moves away from you. It's us. We pull back. We stop reading. We stop praying. We stop thinking. We stop fellowshipping. But as we engage in those things, as we move back and we go, I'm going to spend significant times in prayer, and I'm going to be in his word, and I'm going to be in fellowship, and I'm going to give to the work of the ministry, God draws near to us. But beloveds, he will always love you. Jesus will always love you if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the end. And then the third application. Gospel joy is found in partnering in gospel ministry, both local and global. We are saved to make much of God and his glory and to make more worshipers. We will experience joy in the work and the support of gospel ministry when they put our heads and minds and hearts to it. I implore you to do that because that's what scripture says. I'm just the messenger and I don't know anything about where your hearts or your wallets or your affections are. but I do know that's what scripture says. And so we need to be obedient to it. All these other things that we worry and we we talk about, they're peripheral to the work of the ministry of the gospel. And are you partnering in it? That's between you and the Lord. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart, don't ignore it. Do it. Don't fight him. Because there is much gospel joy in that. Let me pray for us and then we'll continue with worship to end our service. Gracious Father, we thank you for the work of the Apostle Paul that when we think about how he was called,
called to the ministry, a man who had murdered Christians and had approved it all over, all over that part of the world at that time. Who, when your servant Stephen was stoned in the book of Acts, the men who stoned him laid their, co- their cloaks at the feet of Paul. Is that man who you chose to miraculously save on the road to Damascus? That you touched his heart and changed his life and made him one of the greatest apostles that we know. So used by you, God, to spread the gospel that when he was in chains, he shared the gospel with those who he was chained to. When he was in chains and hurting, He was praying for others. Lord, may we be like the Philippian church who so loved you and so loved the gospel that they partnered and gave, gave of themselves, gave of their people. Epaphroditus almost died because he gave so much to the work of the gospel. Help us to not be grudging givers, but to be cheerful givers of ourselves, and our resources to the work of the gospel. That's what you call us to, Father. May our church be a light, a beacon in this community as we work wholeheartedly, not just to wait for opportunities, but to take opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. May you make more worshipers in Applegate, in Medford, in Grants Pass, in Williams, in Roosh, because of this congregation. That's my prayer for us, Father. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.